All right, we are going to be starting a new series today on the Ten Commandments, and as we wade into the Old Testament, it's one of those often overlooked parts of the Bible, maybe because some of us have the mindset that it's old, you know, it's antiquated, and there's a New Testament, so we might as well read that. I will be the first to admit that was absolutely my mindset for a good portion of my Christian life until I went to grad school and I took a class on the Old Testament. And as the professor had us going through scripture and reading it and actually kind of beginning to to make some connections, I realized that so much of the New Testament, the themes that are brought up there are actually started in the Old Testament. And you can't fully appreciate and understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like watching the Empire or even the Return of the Jedi without watching Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back. The story makes sense, but without all of the the backstory, you really lose out on a lot of the character development and and the development of these themes that are ultimately culminated in the final, you know, episode. So, Old Testament is really important, and over the next 10 weeks or so, we are going to dive headlong into the the book of Exodus. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. As you're doing that, just a little bit of backstory. We know, we, we kind of remember the history of the Israelites. They were a people that God chose out of all of the nations of the world. He said, you are going to be to me my chosen people. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation set apart for me from all of the other nations in the world. Not because you deserve it, but because I've chosen you. And yet Israel finds themselves at a, at a pretty early stage in their development as a nation enslaved in Egypt. And so God uses a series of plagues, 10 of them, each of them, interestingly, targeting a different one of Egypt's gods. And he, he softens or breaks Pharaoh's heart to the point where he's willing to finally let his slave labor go to go worship their God. But then he has a change of heart. I can't let them go. I just let all of our slave labor go. What? So he begins to pursue them into the desert. And God brings the Israelites to the Red Sea. And he parts the waters and leads them through on dry ground. And when the, and when the Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world at that point, begins to pursue them through the waters, he brings the walls of water crashing back down and decimates the Egyptians without the Israelites having to raise a single sword. He then leads them through the wilderness, feeding them manna in the morning, quail at night, guiding them step by step. And he leads them toward the promised land. And then he brings them on the way to the promised land to the foot of Mount Sinai. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they, and they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain, Mount Sinai. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully... And if you keep my covenant, which he's about to establish with them, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. 
Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy or set apart nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Basically, here's what God is doing. A covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. God is establishing a covenant here with Israel. He had earlier established a covenant with Abraham, who was their forefather. He said to Abraham, although you have no kids, I am going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a ton of kids. So many descendants, in fact, that it'll be more numerous than the stars in the sky, more numerous than the sand on the seashore. Not only that, but I'm going to give you a land, the land of Canaan, what the Israelites came to know as the promised land. I'm going to give you that land land to be yours. I'm going to bless you as a nation, not solely so that you can kind of keep the blessing, but so that you can be a blessing to all nations. That was the covenant he made with Abraham. And now as the Israelites are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, God extends this covenant relationship to them. And he's about to lay out the covenantal stipulations because he reminds them, listen, I am already doing what I promised to do. I have brought you out of slavery. I have decimated an army. I am leading you to the promised land that I promised to give you. Now I'm going to lay out for you your end of the bargain, the covenantal stipulations that I'm going to ask you to keep. What we understand, it's the Decalogue, which basically is just another word for the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words that God gave to Israel to organize their relationship. But before we actually dive in to the Ten Commandments and read them, all of this raises an important question, one that was kind of (laughs) flows out of what I talked about last week at Easter. And that is, God is covenanting with the Israelites. It's a covenant that's based upon obeying the law. Their relationship with God was based upon their obedience to the law. But as, as Paul found out, as we talked about last week, we cannot perfectly keep the law. We cannot be made righteous by our own effort. And that's exactly why Jesus had to come to establish a new covenant. So the question that this raises is, what does the law, which is part of a covenantal relationship between God and Israel, what does that have to do with us as Christ followers? What bearing does the law have on us? That's what I want to spend the next 15 or 20 minutes exploring. Because it could be very easy for us to say, simply, the covenant is old and antiquated, therefore the law is also old and antiquated and has very little to do with us. Might be good for some ideas on how to live, but ultimately has no bearing on our lives. That might be one approach, and it's one that many of us probably hold to the law. But let's actually go into the Bible and let's take a look at the formation of the new covenant that we find ourselves under, and we're going to be asking the question as we go through this, what relationship do we as Christ followers have with the law that God's laid out the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments? You ready? Because we are about to embark on a very exciting adventure through Scripture. We're going to be going through a lot of them. We're not going to spend a ton of time on them. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It's all in the Old Testament, and they're pretty big books. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah was a prophet, basically one who spoke for God, um, during a very interesting, tumultuous time in Israel's history. About 600 years before Jesus Christ came on the scene, Jeremiah watched as the people, who had, the people of Israel who had turned their back on God began to worship other gods, began to kind of flirt with other nations because, yeah, we, we worship Yahweh, but we want to kind of hedge our bets. 
So they were worshiping other gods as well. They broke the covenantal stipulations that God had laid out for them. And so God said, well, there's going to be some repercussions to this. And other nations began to come in and chip away at the, at the promised land. Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, and ultimately the people of Israel are overthrown and Jeremiah watches as they're taken into captivity and the promised land is trampled by foreign nations. And yet Jeremiah, the prophet of God, speaks these words prophesying of a day when God will, re, will, will usher his people, the Israelites, back into the promised land and will establish a new covenant with them. And that's what we're going to be reading here in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord. Again, this is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. And I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because we all, they will all know the Lord from the least of them to the great, the greatest for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins. No more flip forward into the new Testament to the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish people. Hebrews is just another word for Israelites or Jews. He's speaking to Jews who have been awaiting their Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer. Many of these Jews have come to believe in Jesus as the Christ. This Jesus of Nazareth, yes, that is our Messiah. That is who God sent to redeem us. But they're confused. Because they looked at the, the old approach to God, the old covenantal kind of relationship where high priests would regularly sacrifice animals to kind of atone for the people's sins. And then they look at Jesus who was God in the flesh and yet he became the ultimate sacrificial animal. He was the, he was the one who was willing to go to the cross and take upon himself the sins of all the people. And they're saying, why did God have to do that? Wasn't the old sacrificial good enough? Wasn't the old covenant good enough? And the writer of Hebrews is directing, is addressing that question specifically. And so he says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, <clears throat> In fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to there to those old high priests. Just as the covenant of which Jesus is the mediator is superior to the old covenant, since this new covenant is established on better promises. And now he's going to explain what he means. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God did find fault with the people. And he said, and now he's going to quote at length Jeremiah 31 that we just wrote, read. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It won't be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And so I turned away from them. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my heart in their minds and I will, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And now listen to what he says. 
By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Proof, isn't it, that the old covenant is nullified. Therefore, the law that went with it, the stipulations of the people is nullified. It's obsolete too, right? Not necessarily. Because notice, go back to verse 8 for just a second. Notice where the fault lies. Where, where, where the issue was with the old covenant. It was not with the law, was it? He says this in verse 8. God found fault with the people, not with the law. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, because again, we're going through a lot of passages right now, but turn to Romans 8 for just a moment. Here is the point that the writer of Hebrews was saying. The covenant fell apart, not because the law was deficient in some way, not because the law was flawed, but because the people, because of their own brokenness, either because of their unwillingness or inability, they could not follow the law perfectly. They could not become righteous in God's eyes by their perfect obedience to the law. Something had to be done. And so we read in Romans chapter 8, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the laws of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, not because it was flawed, not because it was, you know, broken, but the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by our flesh, by our fallenness, by our inability to actually obey it. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to make a sin or to be a sin offering. In other words, what the law was powerless to do, namely to make us righteous in God's eyes, God did by sending Christ. And when he went to the cross and took upon himself our sins, he justified us in the law, in the sight of the law. We become perfect even though we are broken, sinful human beings. Does that make sense? I know this is really meaty, but this is an important kind of thread that we're just trying to follow through Scripture. Back to to where we were at. And so he condemned, so God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met fully in us. Did you hear that? He didn't die on the cross to nullify the law. He died on the cross in order to make sure that the law is actually fully met in us. Those of us who are willing to submit to the spirit. Here's the point. And as, as I'm, I'm going through this, turn to Matthew chapter five, the last place we're going to turn before we actually get to the 10 commandments. Here's the point that he's saying. God recognized that under the old covenant, we as human beings were incapable of perfectly obeying the law. Under the old covenant, that's how righteousness was attained. That's how our relationship with God was maintained. Obedience. God recognized we are incapable of doing that, so he established a new covenant, one under Jesus Christ, that says that we are made righteous not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. Not because of our own perfection, but because of his perfection, which is then given to us by faith. It is an act of grace. So we are now under a covenant of grace, not a covenant of the law. That doesn't mean that the law is deficient. It doesn't mean that the law is obsolete. It simply means that we are not made righteous by the law. But the law 
was still God's perfect kind of structure or framework for his people. The law was intended to protect our relationship with God and to protect our relationship with one another. The law was how God desired to see us live our lives out so that we could be ambassadors of hope and reconciliation, so that his people could be a holy nation set apart from the others. And Jesus says virtually that, that he did not come to nullify the law at the very beginning of his longest recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is Jesus speaking to the people. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's why we're teaching this, Lee and I, because we want to be great. (laughs) For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who were so hyper-vigilant about following the law that they created extra laws to almost create little boundaries around the laws so that they wouldn't break them. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not inherit or enter the kingdom of heaven. And then, in the midst of his sermon, Jesus goes on to reference many of the commandments that God had laid out for Israel. Don't murder. You've heard it say, don't murder. But I tell you, if you even harbor bitterness and anger in your heart towards your brother, it's as if you've murdered. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at a woman or a man lustfully, you committed adultery in your heart. What Jesus is saying is it goes so far beyond the letter of the law. It's not just about the tangible outward expression. It's about, it's about the heart. The law was never intended to simply be kind of an operating system where we just do things, but our heart is disconnected. God is more focused on our heart than he is simply our actions. And if you're just focused on the external and you forget about your heart, then you're missing the point. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were doing. They had begun to focus on the external But there was no love in their heart. And so Jesus is saying, I did not come to nullify the law. In fact, I came to fulfill it. And the reality is, when I start listening to what Jesus has to say about the law, I realize very quickly that I am 100% incapable of being righteous by obedience to the law. Just as much as the Israelites were, we, each and every one of us, are incapable of being righteous through our own diligent, zealous obedience to the law. But that is exactly the reason that Jesus came. Because God knew that we were incapable of doing it, and so he did it for us by giving us Jesus Christ, who took upon himself the penalty that was due us, so that we could be called righteous in God's sight, even though we were broken and fallen. And then... Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, God residing within us, 
becomes the vehicle through which our hearts are slowly changed and transformed into the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit begins to work in our hearts. We call this the sanctification process. That's just a big Christianese word. For we slowly get our hearts changed to actually desire to obey the law, to actually desire to be more Christ-like. Now, this is a lifelong process and one which none of us are ever going to fully complete this side of the grave. Merv and Gene are pretty close, but not all the way just yet. Mostly Gene. Merv, I love <laughs> The point of this is that we can't be made righteous by observing the law, and we are no longer under the old covenant that says we have to, We have to obey the law in order to have a right standing with God. We are now under a new covenant of grace that says we are made righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But that does not mean in any way that the old law is nullified. The covenant is nullified, but the law is not. The law still holds bearing on our lives because this was God's design for his people. This was God's desire for the way that we should view and interact with him and with one another. Does that make sense? This is going to, be, this is going to come to, to have a lot, make a lot more sense in the coming weeks and months. And I realize that in some ways I've just kind of opened up a big theological fire hose and given all of you a drink. And so... I, there was also stuff I couldn't get to, other passages that I wanted to. So I put together a little two-page document that is going to be handed out at the back as you guys are leaving today. The first side of it kind of rehashes some of what we've talked about this morning. And then the second page, and I totally stole this from somebody else, the second page has the different passages throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, that both rearticulate and, and, and explain how the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, actually hold sway over us, how we should live these out. So each of the passages that correspond in the New Testament to the Old Testament Ten Commandments are listed there. I encourage you to grab that and just kind of use that as a devotional. Some of you might actually get into it in your small groups this week. With that, let's go back now to to Exodus chapter 20, last place we're going today. So you're almost there. So with that foundation, the old covenant is gone. We are under a new covenant of grace. But that doesn't mean that the law is nullified. It doesn't mean that the law is obsolete for us. Let's now read what God actually said to us. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. It's the only place I'm going to do that. Probably not. God here at the very beginning of giving this is kind of setting up this covenant. And so he kind of says, here's who I am. And this is what I've already done. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Now, God's redemption of the Israel, Israelite nation is such a central component for Israel's national identity that many Jews, even today, consider that verse to be the first commandment for them. They consider that to be the reminder of their covenantal relationship with God, who they are in light of who he is to them. And because of that, they then take the next two commandments and kind of squish them together to be the second so that it remains ten commandments. It's just interesting. 
He then goes on. So I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Their identity identified through who he is to them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the sins of the parents of the, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Those first four commandments were focused on preserving the people's vertical relationship with God. All four of them are pointed towards how they view and interact with Yahweh. Now the next six are going to be dealing with their horizontal relationships with one another, with their families, with their neighbors. Verse 12, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey. And that's a really tough one for us to keep today. Or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't do it. Now, can you imagine if the Israelites had actually kept these, if these had formed the framework through which they began to live their lives out, and if they really got it here, not just here, they truly would have been set apart from the other nations, wouldn't they? They truly would have been a holy nation, a kingdom of priests who could then be God's representatives to the other nations. And through them, they could be a blessing. Jesus pretty much summed up all of these and all of the other laws and all of the other prophets with these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said all of the law and all of the prophets basically is summed up in those two things. Love God and love others. Now we could stop here because we've already got enough to chew on the next week or so. But the reality is if we stopped here, we would miss out on a really interesting, really important component of this whole covenantal ceremony that's taking place. So we're going to read just a couple of more verses. We're going to talk about its significance and then we're going to wrap up for today. God has come down to Mount Sinai and is meeting with the people. It's called a theophany, which is just a big word for God showing up in a lot of, you know, big cloud, thunder, lightning, all that kind of stuff, trumpets blaring. And the people naturally are a little nervous. So let's go to verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and they heard the trumpet and they saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear, naturally. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, you speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us or we'll die. We're terrified of this God. And Moses said to the people, now pay really close attention to what he says here. It's interesting. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and will keep you from sinning. 
I'm sorry, Moses, but I think that you just contradicted yourself in the span of about two seconds. Don't be afraid, but God has come to instill the fear of God into your hearts in order to keep you from sinning. How do those correspond? Well, if we kind of step back for a second and think about it, there's, there are different kinds of fear, aren't there? There's healthy fear and there's unhealthy fear. There's fear that motivates us and there's fear that shuts us down. My wife is terrified of spiders. She sees one of those things and literally there are times where she thinks, okay, I'm on a chair. If I fall backwards now, I might break my neck, but that spider won't kill me. And it shuts her down to the point where she has to call me to come home from work in order to kill it. And by the time I get home, it's already crawled somewhere else and she can't find it. And now she's terrified. That's a different type of fear than respecting the fact that the spider might bite you and that there are some spiders that can absolutely, you know, hurt you. And so therefore you give them a little bit of space. Or take test taking, for instance. Some of us study our buns off. And it doesn't matter how hard we prepare. When the day of the test comes, we go blank. We shut down. How many of you are like that? You just shut down in test taking and you hate tests. Okay, not, not a ton of us. They are scary. And it can actually hinder our ability to remain, retain the information and remember what we've already studied. That's the kind of fear that Moses is saying, don't be afraid. Don't be in terror. I mean, this is the God who loved you enough to redeem you out of slavery. He's not here to destroy you. Don't be terrified. But there's another type of fear, a respectful fear, a fear in which you say, I respect the power of this thing, whatever this thing is, so much so that I'm going to order my life around it. Take test taking again. I remember when I was preparing for the SATs. I respected the the gravity of that SAT. I knew that it, how I did on that would affect the kind of college I could get into. And I recognized that that would then affect the trajectory of my career path. And so I decided that I was going to order my life around the gravity of that test. I began to prepare while my buddies were out there playing outside or playing video games. I chose to sacrifice that time that I could be joining them to take practice test after practice test, not because I enjoyed it, but because I respected the gravity of that SAT. And so I ordered my life around it. Make sense? And in the same way, when we begin to have a respect for God, when we begin to fear him, it's interesting. Scripture says tons of places throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, there's this term. The fear of God is the beginning of what? Wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The term there, fear, in Hebrew is yare or yare. I don't know how you pronounce it. I'm a white boy. But that term yare elsewhere in the Old Testament is translated revere or reverence. Here's the point. When we begin to have a reverential respect for who God is, the creator and the sustainer of everything that we see, not only that, but the designer of every single one of us, the one who created us in his image, designed us, gave us the minds through which we can understand the world and placed his image within us. He is God. We are not. And when we begin to recognize who he is, 
hopefully, we will begin to order our lives around him. You want to be wise? It begins with a proper understanding of who God is and what God wants for us. Let me give you an example. Imagine that I, like Mr. Edwards, um, went and bought one of those really big smartphones that you can kind of put up on the side of your wall and it's kind of like a flat screen TV that you carry around in your pocket. Come on. Samsung Galaxy Note 2. Come on, baby. Imagine I went and got one of those things and then I went and got some pants with pockets big enough to stick them in. And then I actually read the instructions for that. I know it's just a total hypothetical and a little bit far-fetched. But imagine that I read the instructions for how to operate my new smartphone. And as I began to read through the instructions, I came to a part where they began to set some limitations on my new phone. Don't take this swimming with you. <laughs> Why not? Don't use this as a hammer. Sometimes you've got to hit a nail. This is not a frisbee. Avoid throwing, avoid dropping. What if I read those instructions and, and kind of started getting a little butthurt? Like, these designers are such killjoys. They're trying, this is my phone, not theirs. They can't tell me what to do with my phone. I imagine that in the next day or two of me owning that, I would be very upset at those same designers for making such a shoddy piece of work as I take my dripping, shattered phone that's completely unresponsive back to the store to get a full refund, wouldn't I? The reality is, if we disregard the way something is designed and we disregard the parameters that are placed on it by the designer, we set ourselves up for frustration, pain, and destruction. When we recognize who our designer is and recognize that he really alone has the right to speak into how we live our lives, as we gain a proper perspective on who God really is, he's, he's not just our buddy. Jesus isn't just our homeboy. He's not just our savior. He's also our Lord and is the only one worthy of fully submitting our lives to and ordering our lives around when we begin to have a proper reverent fear for who God is, then we will begin to live wise lives in which we order our lives around him and allow him to guide our steps. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm going to invite Justin and the, and the worship team to come up. I want to I leave us this morning. I know that I just opened a theological fire hose. And I know there's a lot to process here, but I want to remind us of the points that we've, we, today, this morning, we've just laid a theological foundation upon which we're now going to be able to, over the coming weeks, approach the Ten Commandments. Here's what we learned this morning. One, we are not under the old covenant in which we are made righteous by obedience to the law. Rather, we are under a new covenant, a covenant of grace in which Jesus Christ did for us what we could never do by our own efforts. We cannot save ourselves. I can't say that enough. That said, just because we're under a new covenant does not nullify the law. The law is God's perfect design for us. And we disregard the law at our own peril. Furthermore, our perspective of God has a huge influence on how we approach the law it's more than just about our actions. It's about our heart as well. And over the coming weeks, we are going to dive deep into the heart of the law.
and how that plays out, what it reveals about God's desire for how we interact with him and with others. So this morning, I want to leave us with two questions. You might want to write these down because these are, these are questions that my wife gave me last night and they are probably very, very, they're very insightful. Two questions I want you to consider this week. Question number one. Who is God to you? Do you believe that God truly is your designer? And then question number two. Do you trust that he knows what's best for your life? That's it. Who is God to you? Do you believe that he's your designer? And do you trust that he knows what is best for your life? I encourage you to really seriously consider that because how you answer those questions will absolutely affect the way that you view and ultimately order your life around his law. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you love us enough that you didn't, you still don't expect us to be perfectly righteous by our own efforts, by obedience. I thank you for the new covenant of grace that you established through Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would help us to get a proper, reverential understanding of who you are. And in so doing, that we would begin to be willing to order our lives around your law, around your your direction for our life, around your desires for us. Help us get to the point where we, like Jesus, say, God, this isn't necessarily what I would choose for myself, but your will be done. I want you to have your way with me. So we give you this morning. Jesus, in your holy name, amen.